Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Pop Art. I am your shimmering, glowing star in the cinematic firmament host, Howard Castor. The concept of pop art is for my guests to choose a movie from popular culture, and I, in turn, will choose a film from the more art classic side of cinema. Today, my guest Adam Ferens has chosen the transcendental musical Singing in the Rain, and I have chosen perhaps the more down-to-earth French film Irma Vep, both with stories about people trying to make movies. So to begin, I will let Adam tell us something about himself. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm a writer and a film and television fan. I started my own radio podcast last year. I helped run a few movie and television boards on Facebook. I have a background in history, politics, and literature, and I basically love most movies and television as long as they're good. I don't really care how old they are or where they're from, just as long as there's something interesting to them. Great. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. Thank you. And you chose Singing in the Rain. So I will start out giving our listeners some information about the film. Singing in the Rain is from MGM. It was released in 1952. It was directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan, produced by Arthur Freed. The screenwriters are Biddy Comden and Adolf Green. It stars Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds, Gene Hagen, Millard Mitchell, Sid Charisse, Douglas Valley, Rita Marino, and Madge Blake. <laughs> the basic premise of the movie is that as the talkies are coming in, a successful leading man of silent film, his new love, an up-and-coming starlet, and his best friend in the music department are thwarted by their attempts to transition due to a leading lady with a voice that resembles nails on a blackboard <laughs> to begin let's ask why did you choose this film well i chose it for a few reasons one it's one of my top 10 films it's my choice for the absolute best musical ever put on film i think it's a beautiful work of art that's also grand entertainment i don't think i can disagree with anything you say there when did you first see it Oh, I think I must have been 10 or 12. I've lost count of the number of times I've seen it over the years. What did you think of it when you first saw it? When I first saw it, I'd actually been introduced to the concept of Singing in the Rain. I think it must have been, believe it or not, watching with family members when they would watch back in the 80s, the ice skater Scott Hamilton's Singing in the Rain routine where he actually had it, quote unquote, raining onto the ice as he was skating. I remember people saying, well, you know, that's from a movie. And I was a little kid. I eventually saw the movie and fell in love with it. I've always loved movie history. So I connected with that aspect of it immediately. But as I've gotten older, and watched it more and more, there's always something new to appreciate with this one. So I think it's safe to say that you think it still holds up after all this time. Absolutely. I first saw it probably in college back in the 70s. I can't say exactly when, but I think like you, you know, I fell in love with it and just watch it every once in a while. And I'm sure I've seen it at least 10 times. It's for me, a movie that if you ever feel down or depressed, things aren't <laughs> going well, watch Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. It's going to make you feel better. What are some of your favorite parts of that film? Well, you know, the thing is, everybody talks about Gene Kelly, the Singing in the Rain number, but I think that Donald O'Connor absolutely steals the show as Cosmo Kramer, and particularly the physical bits that he gets up to in uh, Make Him Laugh, which comes fairly early in the film for what I consider pretty much a showstopper, but damn if it's not, that's, that's one of my favorite bits. But this is more an aspect, and it's the, the villainous in the film. Who Gene Hoggett. 
Gene Hagen, who who was yeah. who was up for who I believe was the only member of the cast up for an Oscar. That's right. She is so good in this role because every once in a while you're like, well, maybe she's just too dumb or selfish, and then it's oh no 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 she's a monster, and it's not just the writing, it's it's her performance. So I would really say as as great as the whole cast and crew is, as great as the production is, top to bottom, Donald O'Connor and Gene Hagen, they're the yeoman. They're the the straws that stirred this drink. Well, it's certainly true that both of them steal the show. And Gene Hagen, who is this wonderful actress, and they didn't really know what to do with her. So she never probably had quite the career that she did. She's also wonderful in Asphalt Jungle and uh, some other films like that. But apparently when she auditioned, she did a deadpan impersonation of Billie Holiday in Born Yesterday because she was Billie Holiday's understudy for the Broadway production. That pretty much is what sold her and got her the part. And she is quite brilliant. And Donald O'Connor, of course, just really steals the show. It's very hard to find something not to like about Singing in the Rain. So it's some ways hard to find the favorite parts. Those are mine, of course, the final. I always call it Gotta Dance Ballet, but it's the Broadway ballet at the very end Mm -hmm. is certainly outstanding. And uh, the good morning, good morning. One of the last times I watched it, I was in the hospital. I had had my appendix removed and it comes on TV. Basically, I'm saying, well, I don't know if I really want to watch it or not, mainly because it's too good. Sometimes you don't want to watch a movie that's really, really good when you're not feeling well. So I said, well, I'll just watch this part of it. I'll just watch this section. And they said, oh, no, then I'll watch the next section. And then, no, I'll watch the next section. And finally, you're just watching the whole thing. Because it is a movie that's built, in many ways, in sections. Each section has this major song and dance number to it and it's just seamless and it's hard to stop watching uh once you start watching it it's very compelling this hasn't happened on on the show yet but you actually picked a film that in many ways crosses over from pop culture to art and classic cinema it started out as a pop culture film but somewhere along the line it transcended that and became part of both worlds why do you think that is Well, I think it's too entertaining to not have mass appeal, but I think it's also too artistic for it not to be regarded as what it is, and that's not just visually, aesthetically. This is a film, people talk about Sunset Boulevard rightfully, and The Bad and the Beautiful rightfully, along with a few other films, including the one we're going to get to later, as examinations of Hollywood, or at least how films are made. But I think that Singing in the Rain is every bit an examination of how movies are made, both a celebration and an indictment in some ways, as anything else except it's got music it's got laughter and it's just a wonderful wonderful experience yeah it's not completely cynical like some of the other movies are it does have a heart in there and it does deal with in many ways the same thing that sunset boulevard deals with what happens to people who can't make the transition from silent to sound we see here as one gets pushed out, Gene Hagen, and then in Sunset Boulevard, you see what happens to someone who couldn't make that transition, what happens to them years later. People who made these studios a massive amount of money, and the studio just doesn't have any use for them after that. One thing you might say about what happened and why it's so good is, perhaps, and you might comment on this, is that it was actually the result of what we now call today a perfect storm, or even at another time might have called a zeitgeist. This was MGM, and they got Arthur Freed to be head of a special department just about musicals. 
And Arthur Freed brought with him not just his, but a ton of other songs and a musical library and a musical history. It also was full of talent like Gene Kelly, and they could get talent like Donald DeCollar and Gene Hagen, and they had wonderful choreographers and wonderful directors and wonderful writers, all in one place at one single time. They had all of this to play with, and something great was bound to come out of it. Everything just came together perfectly, just exquisitely for this movie, because of the time where everything, everything just hit together all at once. Yeah, well, I remember that when Stanley Donnan got his honorary Oscar, he said, people always ask me, how do you make a classic musical? And he said, well, you're backed by Arthur Freed, and you have Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor, and he named a few of the other stars, people that he'd worked with both in this movie and a couple others. But it's basically like he was listing off Singing in the Rain. And um, I think that speaks volumes, the support that MGM gave its musicals while Arthur Freed was there. Yeah, and I don't think we've seen that since. I mean, there are musicals I've liked since, but they never quite look the same as these musicals. They're not directed the, the same way. They're not edited the same way. You don't seem to have the dancers for musicals today that they did then, like Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and Donald O'Connor. Even Debbie Reynolds, who had to learn to dance for this movie, he was not a dancer before this. I often say when I watch musicals that are made today, whether I like them or not, I said, you know, I really wish the editor would stop becoming the choreographer. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think that's a Baz Luhrmann legacy from Moulin Rouge. He's the one who really made it big. Where you never really see dancing, you see a lot of edited clips put together of people dancing. And for me, it's rarely as effective as it was when you have scenes like Singing in the Rain or the ballet at the end, where there aren't very many cuts. No. They're all series of long takes. And, you know, I know there have been a lot of great musicals after this, uh, some of my favorite being Cabaret, right. 1776, which I really dearly, dearly love, My Fair Lady and Fiddler on the Roof. And there's been a few others, but just nothing, nothing compares to Singing in the Rain. And it's been almost 70 years. And some might say, well, that's a sad statement on what happened with musicals. And I like to think of it in a more positive light. It's a grander statement on how damn near perfect Singing in the Rain itself is. Well, that is true. Sometimes some works of art are so great that even though you'll never have another work of art that compares to it, after that, you say there's something wrong with the time period that the new art is being created in. But yeah, I'm not sure that's really quite fair. Nobody is as good as Shakespeare. I'm not sure we should automatically condemn all theater because nobody can write as well as Shakespeare can. So I think you have a point. Singing in the Rain is just so great that to some degree it's it's not really fair to say, well, other musicals don't come up to it. There must be something wrong with people making musicals. When in reality, Singing in the Rain is just so great. Yeah, um, Singing in the Rain. <laughs> it's certainly a very quotable film. Do you have a favorite quote from it? Yeah, I actually do. There's two that are tied. And one is when she says to, to him, she says, oh, there's no way that you could possibly have faked that. Yes, it is. Why? Because I'm the world's greatest actor. You mean you'd really rather t kiss a tarantula? Give me a tarantula. Yes. Yes. You don't believe me? Hey, find me a tarantula. I think for some reason, and I can't say why, my favorite is when Lena Lamont, Jean Hagen, they're trying to teach her to talk. They keep saying round tones, round tones. And she says her lines, and I can't stand them. 
<laughs> I, that was brilliant. Well, I, I also like it when the guy in the audience, during the test audience section, and he shouts out, Hey, Lena, what you doing? You hitting him with a blackjack there? Yeah. Um, there are so many wonderful scenes. It began as Arthur Freed basically coming to Betty Compton and Adolph Green saying, I need a musical. Here are all these songs I've written. Write a musical with those songs. And that's all they were really given as a guide. Since most of the songs, only two of the songs are, rich, are original. Uh, the Moses Supposes is original, and Compton and Green wrote the lyrics for that. And then they also wrote, which seemed to bear a very strong resemblance to a song by Cole Porter that was uh, Be a Clown. And they pretty much stole Be a Clown and turned it into Make Him Laugh. And Be a Clown was in The Pirate, the movie Gene Kelly and Judy Garland. And I think they showed it to Cole Porter and he pretended not to notice that they stole it. But all the other songs were were songs written by Arthur Freed and others. And since most of them were written at the time of the 20s, when movies were making the transition, they decided it would be about a group of people making the transition. They started writing it, and they had a difficult time writing it because they had three openings. One was the backstory of Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor. One was the film opening, and one was the Lena Lamont, Gene Kelly conflict and issues. And they couldn't figure out which one to start with. They couldn't figure out how to write it so they gave up until Betty Comden's husband says well why don't you just use all three as the opening and once they figured out how to do that then the rest of the movie started coming through I keep wanting to talk and talk about it but I'm not sure what else to say about one of the greatest movies ever made it's well regarded by critics as well on the sight and sound in 1982 is number four in 2002 is number 10 on the critics list it's number 19 on the director's list and then here's to cinema it's number seven and it's very strange because the movie wasn't that great a success when it came out it didn't lose money but it wasn't a huge hit at the same time yeah i've got it at number eight it's right in between citizen kane and once upon a time in america on my list one of those films that did okay either did okay or didn't do well at the time but somehow just blossomed you know citizen kane didn't do well for various reasons a combination of studio politics and it being an art movie that didn't really appeal to the masses necessarily vertigo lost money Uh, it's a wonderful life didn't succeed either even the wizard of oz was only a moderate success mainly because children's ticket prices were half price at the time, so it was very hard to make a profit. But it's one of these films that at the time, nobody really thought it was going to be anything more than what it was. And years later, it's just at the top of the list. The movie itself kind of became one of those Hollywood success stories. Right. It, it's, it's a wonderful experience. I mean, the last time I saw it was about a month and a half, two months ago. I was watching it with my girlfriend. She hadn't seen it in a while, and neither had I. So I popped in the Blu-ray. You know, it's a movie I usually watch, maybe not every year, but every other year, at least. We were just instantly sucked into it, sat there. I don't think either of us got up to even go to the bathroom or grab water or anything. It, it's just a wonderful, wonderful film. Betty Condon, Adolf Green won the Writers Guild of America Award that year for Best Screenplay. Donald O'Connor won the Golden Globe Award for Best Performance in a Musical. Jean Hagen, as you said, got an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. It also got a nomination for Best Original Score. And I'd also like to point out Madge Blake, who is the Hedda Hopper, Luella Parsons, gossip columnist at the very opening. Gene Kelly liked her very, very much and put her in every one of his films. She never got a credited role. Today, 
today, everybody who's in a movie and has anything to do with it appears on a screen. But in those days, you would have tons of people that never would be credited. And today, she's probably best remembered as being on Leave it to Beaver. She was Larry Mondello's mother and as the aunt in the Batman television show. Mm-hmm. It also is one of the very early appearances of Rita Marino, who, of course, went on to West Side Story fame and has won a Tony, an Oscar, a Grammy, a, and an Emmy. She's one of the EGOT winners, as they call her. And Sid Charisse is the wonderful dancer in the Broadway Melody scene, where they had to do some editing. The censors thought some of the dancing at one point was a little too erotic and risque. <laughs> well, I think it's wonderful that you have Sid Charisse in a scene that the censors thought was a little too erotic. Well, let's be honest. And she may not appeal to everyone the same way because the world's made up of all sorts of different people. But for me, she's got to be one of the sexiest women who ever walked. It's easy to see why the censors may have thought any scene with her in that getup doing that dancing with that music was, was erotically charged. Yes. And she went on to have a career of her own, perhaps best known now as Fred Astaire's dancing partner in the band wagon which is about a film star trying to make a comeback in a broadway show debbie reynolds of course went on to have a huge career as well getting an oscar nomination for the unsinkable molly brown and becoming actually i think a much better actress than people to give her credit for she took her craft very seriously yeah, and I think her daughter got unfairly maligned as an actress because of Star Wars, and maybe because she became known more in her later years for off-the-screen troubles and for being a well-regarded script doctor. But I think that both the mother and the daughter were fine actresses who took their craft very seriously indeed, so I absolutely agree. Jean Hagen was the one who I guess had the most difficulty. As I said, they didn't know what to do with her in many ways after this. They didn't know how to cast her or what to put her in. So she did have a career, but she also died relatively relatively young from cancer. And Donald O'Connor was always a wonderful entertainer. I don't think he ever quite managed to have a real solid film career after this. Are there any final things you might want to say about Singing in the Rain before we move on? No, I think we've pretty much covered everything. Although I will say Donald O'Connor made an appearance late in his career in Out to Sea with Jack oh. Lemp and uh, Walter Matthau. And he once again played the best friend role. Was, of course, in a very small part. Very wonderful. Yeah, and you know, I actually might have to say one thing. As much as I love that sequence with Sid Charisse, the film does have one minor flaw. I think that for some audience, that sequence might go on a couple minutes too long, even though I think it's glorious to watch. I suppose that is true. It was still sort of a risk, even though they had done a ballet before in an American in Paris. And that was a very risky thing to do. Mm-hmm. But they insisted and they did it. And American Paris was a big success when Best Picture. So it almost became that if Gene Kelly was going to be in a movie, you're going to have a ballet number. Yes, I suppose you might say it might go on a little too long that it sort of now is no longer about the transition from movies, but it's about Gene Kelly, which isn't surprising because from what people say gene kelly was pretty much all about gene kelly yeah i guess it wouldn't be too surprised that he would want to have this long ballet number in which none of the other characters in the movie are in it 
So with that, let's move on to the next film. And mm-hmm. that was my choice, which was Irma Vep. I will begin again with some basic information. It was released in 1996. It was directed by, written by, Olivier Assayas, one of France's major directors today. It stars Maggie Chung as herself, Jean-Pierre Lyon, Natalie Ricard. I'll probably get most of these wrong. Boulle Augier, Lucas Del, Arsini Lajean, Antoine Bassler, and Natalie Rotefio, Alex Desca, and Olivier Terrace. Basically, the premise is about a Chinese actress, Maggie Chung, basically playing herself because mm-hmm. her name is Maggie Chung in the movie. She has been hired to star in a modern-day adaptation of the classic French silent film Irma Vep, the title of which is a anagram for vampire, only to arrive in the middle of a production in chaos. So when did you first see Irma Vep? Actually, it was yesterday, so I've only seen it once. It was a film that I had attempted to see once before, and when I got the copy home from the library, I opened up the container, I brought out the disc, only to see that the disc had a small crack in it and was no longer viable. Yep, and Criterion had it, and I've been putting it off for a little while when uh, we decided to do this show, and this became the second of the two films we were going to discuss. I jumped at the chance because it's one that I've had on my see list for a while, now, I haven't seen a lot of Asias' film. I've only seen, I think, five of But this and Carlos, his miniseries about Carlos the Jackal, are my two favorite works of his. What did you think of I mean, what was your impression of it? What did you like about it? Well, you know, it did remind me of the film that we came in with this as a replacement for, Day for Night. It definitely has a very bouncy energy to it, but it's also very serious in places. It has homages to older films without being overly beholden to them. I like the fact that it very easily transitions from from English to French, from black and white to color. It's got a good soundtrack. It's just a top-notch film. It's an interesting look at the shit that can go wrong when obsession strikes a set. Obsession with an idea that maybe doesn't quite work. Right. That'll be a very interesting idea to talk about, which we'll talk about later. But I did want to bring up, because you did mention Day for Night, and it should be said that was my original choice. And the reason why we did not go with Day for Night is it's simply not really available to be seen at this moment for whatever reason so we had to come up with a substitute but there are some comparisons of this to day for night that are very interesting Mm -hmm. for example jean-pierre liod plays a major role in both films in day for night he's one of the three lead actors in the movie within the movie and one of the lead actors in the movie as a whole here he plays a director that many people say he was channeling francois truffaut and of course day for night was written directed and starred truffaut himself and both, yes, are about people making films. And you mentioned that film within the film is an idea that doesn't work. The last time I saw it before preparing for the show, I went with a friend to a revival house where they showed Day for Night and Irma Vep. My friend made an interesting observation that I think is actually maybe true for many, many movies about people making movies. In both Day for Night and Irma Vep, neither of the films they're making really seem like films that are really worth making. In Day for Night, even the director says, well, you know, it's really not much of a film. It's just sort of a romantic soap opera. 
Pierre, it's a remake of a classic French film that one really wonders whether it should even be remade. Yeah. Adding to the fact, the reason why the director in the film chose Maggie Chung was based on inaccuracy. It was based on seeing her in a martial arts film from Hong Kong and a lot of the stunts she did. But as she says when she writes, well, you know, I didn't do any of those stunts. Those were all my stunt doubles. So basically, he asked an actress to be in it for a very specific reason, and that reason didn't really exist. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, at the end of the movie, I'm going to discuss a spoiler here for the Oh, yes. There's no spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. At the end of the movie, the director, the original director of the film is replaced and the guy that comes in decides to replace her. While you're sitting there and going, there's a comment here about xenophobia in France. There's also the fact that why this actress, what was it about her? He he kept repeating, there's nothing wrong with her as an actress. I'm sure she's very good. The film I saw her in, she wasn't the problem. And that's true. And that makes you think even more that Renee, the director that got replaced, place really wasn't in charge of all of his faculties. It really does make you consider one of the central tenets of the film, which is how an obsession with an idea can sink a piece of art. Yes, I think you have a very good good point there, because he wanted to make the film because of Maggie Chung. I think it's interesting you pick up the idea of the xenophobia, because there is a trace of that with the new director. I mean, he keeps saying it's not because she's Asian, and every time he says it's not because she's Asian, I keep wanting to say it's because she's Asian. Yeah, because he keeps referring to her as that child. Chinese actress. Right. And it does remind me today of people on Facebook saying, well, James Bond can't be black because originally he's from this part of England, or you can't change the race of any Marvel superhero, or you can't change the sex because that's not the way they were originally. And I'm going, no, the reason why you don't want to do it is because there's a trace of racism running through that. He says that this is a French film, so it should be played by a French actress. Yeah, and the thing is, then when you see the dailies, you realize well, she wasn't the problem. It was whatever Renee was doing with the film that was the problem. It's a fascinating look. And, you know, there's that discussion that the reporter has with Chung. And she says, well, this is your idea of movies. And he says, no, this is the idea of success in films. There's a lot of commentary about arrogance and ignorance, art versus commerce, whether the twain should ever meet. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie that both embraces film and particularly French film culture, while also letting leveling a very critical eye at such things. It's a marvelous piece of art. You mentioned a couple of very good, interesting points there. I do think that that interview with the reporter, I'll always remember it. I remember it from the very first time I saw the film, because France in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, especially the 50s and 60s, at that time, at least in the U.S., was considered, along with perhaps Italy and Sweden, as the epitome of movie art. This was the definition of what art was in cinema. Then you had this reporter coming along and saying, well, is that true anymore? Is that kind of cinema really relevant? Are the kind of films that Truffaut, Merzon, and Godard made really the kind of films that should be made? starting in the 80s with the movie Diva by Biniex and Luc Brezon coming along with Subway. There was a new kind of French film, which was not about existentialism or deep personal drama. These were more genre films that were very exciting, high pulse, high energy. There was sort of lines being drawn between the two. The journalist makes a very interesting point in that France, the government, puts a lot of money into the film industry, but the money they put into the film industry isn't necessarily the kind of movie that Besson makes, they put it into the more intellectual, the more personal dramas. But as the interviewer says, that's not what the masses want to see. 
I think there's also a little bit of chauvinism in that scene, too, because he completely ignores her comment, doesn't allow her to really get a chance to defend her point of view. And she even says, well, this is a very masculine film that you're talking about. If there's only one type of film, then that's all people are going to know, and they won't have the choice of anything else, and they won't know anything else. And he says, well, that doesn't really matter. He talks right over her. The film is consistently about women being Put in positions where they lack power. They seem to be given a choice, and then men take that choice away from them, and they just have to live with the consequences of male choice. Yes, I think that's a very good observation. I mean, one of the interesting things to Maggie Chung and her character is that she's a star in this film, but she's sort of treated as an object. She's not really treated as an actress. She's not really treated as a star. She's just sort of treated as someone that's there to make this movie that they have to deal with, that they don't really want to deal with. Even Leod's wife is taken away because he physically abuses her. The women are constantly put down. And you're right, that interviewer, he's not really interviewing her. He's just lecturing her. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating film, and you know, the thing is, is, I've seen a few other Isaias films. I probably need to revisit Personal Shopper and Claude Cecil's Maria because I might have just been in a different mood, maybe a different place in my life, but they just didn't work for me, and it may just be my hesitance to ever really give Kristen Stewart much more of a chance. But I've seen Carlos, I've seen this, and then there was one other film. It was a very short film. It was about as short as this one that I thought was pretty good, so I may have to go back and give them that. But Isaias really does have a way of handling female characters being opposed by men in a way that I think a lot of directors aren't willing to do. They want to paint the women as complete victims while these women are victims to a degree. They aren't defined by being victimized. Right. Yes. I think I mentioned this before when we were communicating back and forth. For me, Clouds of Sils Maria and Personal Shopper have very good first two acts and then they both just completely fall apart in the last act. Where was I going with this? And what was I trying to say with this? And what was I trying to do with this? But (laughs) however, I do. Yes, definitely recommend other films like Something in the Air, which is sort of a semi-autobiographical account of him as a teenager in summer hours, which is about a family dealing with the mother soon to die and what to do with this beautiful, beautiful house she has in the country, as well as things like Alison Martin and late August, early September. And recently he did one non-fiction. summer hours I saw. Sorry, I had to interrupt. I think it was yeah. some hours that I saw. Yes. And then recently, nonfiction, which is about a group of people involved in publishing industry today, which in many ways was an analysis of the publishing industry. Irma Vep is an analysis of what the movie making industry in France was like in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is interesting in comparison to Day for Night, and one of the big differences is that things go wrong in Day for Night when they're trying to make this movie, and some serious things go wrong. But in Day for Night, generally, everybody pulled together. Things didn't really fall apart. There was tension, but not a great deal of tension. Here in Irma Beth, things constantly go wrong, and everybody is always at each other's throats. Nobody seems to like anybody. Everybody is always blaming each other for what's going wrong. They stab each other in the back. Yeah, no, the characters are, are much more more vicious in this film even if a few of them are the smile to your face kind right you know i think it's interesting that we chose these two films because you have singing in the rain which basically has the one person in opposition to everyone else causing personal as well as professional headaches whereas in this you have a dozen personal and professional conflicts causing absolute chaos right singing in the rain is probably much closer to day for night and that 
yes, they constantly have problems in these crises, but generally everybody pulls together to try to find a way to make everything work. And Irma Vep, I would hate to be on that film set. And the characters, strange enough, have worked with that director time after time after time. So it's not like they don't know what they're getting into. Or you get somebody like Billy Wilder who worked with Marilyn Monroe two times, four both times, that he'd never work with her again. And then when she died, said, damn, I'll never get to work with her again. Was asked by somebody, what do you mean? We thought you hated working with her. He said, I did. When she gave you that performance, it was wonderful and there was nothing like her. So I think that that's kind of what these people are like. When the magic happened, there was nothing like it. Right. I guess that's kind of like they compare it having children. People say, how come people have so many children if childbirth hurts so much? And they say, well, maybe that's what um, the uh, act of reproduction is for, the pleasure involved. You remember the pleasure and forget the eventual pain. Right. And closing out, the film was actually Olivia Assayas' biggest hit. It's his biggest moneymaker to date. The National Society of Film Critics nominated Natalie Richard for Best Supporting Actress. At the time, though, I remember when it came out, because I first saw it when it came out. I think it was well-received, but not really greatly received. I think it's a much better movie than it was thought of at the time. I think it's gotten better with age, and perhaps one of the reasons is that it's commenting on another time and we now have that distance from that time and we can have a more objective look at the time and even say, I think this is in many ways a very astute observation of many of the issues at that time how women are treated, a degree about race in, in the arts. We can have a more objective view. So in closing out, is there anything else you might want to say about the movie? No, I think we pretty much covered it. I think it really is a film that for those interested in seeing it that haven't, you just need to experience it for yourself. Right. It is, I think, a very good movie. I think the characters are very richly drawn, very vibrant. But Olivier S.C.S. is very good at creating characters. If anything, one of his issues might be that structurally his stories often and tend to be a bit all over the place and maybe not focused enough. I don't particularly have an issue with that. Some people did in this movie. For example, Maggie Chung is a central character. In many ways, we're supposed to be seeing everything from her point of view, but there are times when we completely get off of her characters and have scenes that she's not in and has nothing to do with it. And I think you can sometimes see that in other films of his, but I think it is one of the best films about movies, about movies. It's a, it's a really great, great film. It took me quite by surprise. I expected to be good, but I wasn't sure if it was going to end up being all-time great. It's something I'll have to revisit here in a couple of years. Yes, I'm glad to have got another chance to see it. Now we shall move on to start closing out. One of the things I asked you to do is to recommend a movie or two in the same vein of Singing Your Rain that you might want to recommend to other people. Yeah, and you know, it's funny that you mentioned this. We'd mentioned it already. Two films that I would actually say are similar to these. We mentioned An American in Paris, the aesthetics, everything for Singing in the Rain. But oddly enough, Sunset Boulevard, because of the way that it discusses how the movie industry eats those who don't precisely play by the rules. Right. For me, I will actually recommend three. One is the one, of course, that we have mentioned that we originally wanted to talk about. Of course, that is Stay for Night. Yep. Now, Singing in the Rain is my number one musical of all time. Day for Night is my number one movie about people making movies. The next one will be Contempt by Jean-Luc Godard, which is about a director trying to get a movie going based on Ulysses. He is basically prostituting himself 
in order to make this film. One of the fun facts to know about it is that Godard made it because he was approached by American producers who gave him a ton of money after the success of Breathless. Here's all the money, do whatever you want with it, make this big film. And he makes Contempt which is this very, very small film where you can barely see any of the money being used on it. So he sort of made this film to throw it back into the producer's faces. Finally, the last one I'll mention is one by Rainer Fassbender, Beware of a Holy Whore, which is also about a film set where they can't find the director and things are in chaos. It's actually fascinating that you mentioned those three. I, I didn't mention Day for Night because I figured you might suggest those. I actually considered the other two, and funny enough, on my own show, I have an episode on Fritz Lang coming up next month and of course Contempt has Lang an essential part. That's right. But Beware of a Holy Horror, Sias himself has said that he sees this film Irma Vep more closely resembling Beware of a Holy Horror than Day for Night. Yes, probably so because Beware of a Holy Horror I think is a much more chaotic production that has a lot more problems than Day for Night. So I can definitely definitely see that. In closing out, what should we be expecting from you next? Well, I have a show over on Blog Talk Radio as part of Deviant Legion, Cathode Ray Mission. We are on every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our episode this week will be on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And next month we will be doing what has become our monthly episode where we we mostly do television or television-related topics, but we've been branching out into movies as well. We're doing director's spotlights, and next month is going to be Fritz Lang. That sounds very, very exciting. I'm just about finished watching, I think for the third time, mm-hmm. um, Mabuse the Gambler. Oh, what a wonderful film. My favorite of Fritz Lang's tend to be his silent films. Yeah, I just picked up because they finally had it at 80 bucks, down from about usually $240. That was the Fritz Lang silent set. My favorite long film is M. My second favorite is The Testament of Dr. Mabuzi. But my third favorite is The Gambler. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a uh, screenwriter and script consultant. I have a blog called Rattings and Ravings, in which I talk about movies, screenplays, and screenwriting issues. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations One True Church. Mm-hmm. I have published the second edition of my screenwriting book called More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. I've also published three plays on Amazon. I have a screenwriting consultation a Facebook page under my name. I'm an amateur photographer, so you can find my photos on Instagram. Of course, now I have started this podcast called Pop Art, the most recent, which can be found on Podomatic. It's also on many, many other streaming platforms, including Spotify. The most recent one that is now up was on Robocop and THX 1138. And the next one is going to be on Star Wars and the uh, Kira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. Interesting, interesting. I'm actually doing a Star Wars episode in July on, on my show, and actually, before I forget to mention it, I'm also working on a book. If it gets published, it'll be my first published book, and that's a book on my choices for the top 300 TV programs from around the world. I've seen you working on that and referring to that on Facebook quite often, so I'll be looking forward to that. So with that, I would like to, once again, thank you very much for being on the show. I very much enjoyed having you. I enjoyed being on, and thank you for having me.